however you have God's word with you tonight, we're going to be in 1 John chapter number 2. Uh, awesome song, um, by the way, from the, from the kids. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we think of those, those kids' songs, and we really don't think about them too much, but uh, James says that faith without works is dead. Um, that, that obedience really is the best way to show that we believe. So that's some really, really good truth in that song. 1 John chapter number 2. I love holiday traditions. How many of you have some holiday traditions in your family? Okay. We had holiday traditions growing up. We didn't have a ton of them, but, but we had a few. And uh, we would have a couple traditions on every holiday, but the, tradi- the, the holiday that we had the most traditions on was Christmas. I love Christmas. Christmas is my, probably my favorite holiday of the year. I enjoy Christmas. I, I enjoy the season. And we had different holi- or different um, traditions that we would do on Christmas. So we would wake up in the morning. My mom would make monkey bread every single Christmas morning. Have you had monkey bread before? How many of you? Okay, man, that stuff is good. I put on like eight pounds every Christmas. It was awesome. Um, but but uh, I enjoyed that. But the Christmas tradition that we had that we really never skipped out on is every year we made sure that we watched a couple Christmas movies. How many of you, that's your family, you watch some Christmas movies every year? Okay, good. How many of you are It's a Wonderful Life people? Let me see your hands. I don't know how you people are even awake right now. Okay, like that, <laughs> that movie, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I can't sit through that movie and not fall asleep. No, I, I didn't, I did not enjoy It's a Wonderful Life, but there was one series of movies that we, every single year we would watch. And it didn't matter what was going on through the year, every, movie, every, every year we watched these, these two movies. And they were Home Alone. How many of you have seen Home Alone before? Yes, there we go. I saw a lot of smiles come on your face. So they're such they're, they're good family-friendly movies. They're, they're great. And if you haven't seen the movie before, the, the plot is basically kind of what it sounds like. There's this little boy. His name's Kevin. And his family goes on vacation. And the family leaves him home alone. Hence the name of the movie. And so he's at home by himself. And people try to break into his house. And his job is to defend the house, right? And then the beginning of the first movie... Him, uh, Kevin, and his brother Buzz, they're, they're looking out the window and they see this guy who's got a shovel and he's got a trash can and he's shoveling salt onto the street. Those of you that see, see have seen the movie, you, you know what I'm talking about. And Buzz, his brother, uh, decides that he's going to play a little prank on Kevin. And so he says that the reason that guy has salt is because of all the dead bodies that he's keeping in his basement. And so Kevin, for the rest of the movie, is freaked out by this guy. Every single time this guy comes into a scene, Kevin's screaming. He runs as far away as he can from this guy. I mean, Kevin is legitimately terrified of this guy. And the reason that he's terrified of him is because of what he believes about him. Because what we believe about people determines our response to them. See, if you, the same is true in, in our, in our uh, relationships with our spouses and other people. Uh, you know, if you believe that your spouse was being unfaithful to you, uh, then your response to them would be a little bit different. If you believed that your son or your daughter was lying to you, then your response to them when they come and ask you for something is going to be a little bit different. If you believed that a friend was talking behind your back, you're going to be very careful about the kind of things that you tell them, right? Because what we believe about people is going to determine our response to them. What we believe about God will determine our response to them. It just will. 
And we've been in a series the past couple weeks, we've been talking about this topic, it's not you, it's me. And we're, live, we're learning how to live a life where we are the problem. We're, we're learning how to not live this victim mentality. And many times, the reason that we blame other people for our sins is not because we hate the other person. It's not because we want to make the other person feel bad. It's because deep down, we believe that if God finds out that we've sinned, man, he's not going to like us anymore. God's going to want nothing to do with us if he finds out what I did. And so we spend our life pointing on the finger. No, God, if, I, if she wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't be living this way. Or if he didn't treat me that way, then, then I wouldn't do, have done that. Or if, if she didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done this. And we try to justify our sin because we believe that God's not going to want anything to do with us if he finds out about our sin. Because how what we believe about people will determine our response to them. And so tonight, I hope that we gain a little bit of different perspective of how God deals with our sin. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, a little bit about 1 John. It's written by uh, the Apostle John, most people believe, the same same John that wrote uh, the Gospel of John. And so he's writing to a group of churches that most people believe are in Ephesus, and, and he's writing to them to remind them of the teaching of Jesus, because there are some people in these churches that are trying to pull the church away from their their solid doctrine, and we, we call them Judaizers. They were in the church, they were in the churches, and they were trying to teach that yeah, Jesus died for your sins, but in order to really earn favor with God, you have to do a lot of works in order to to earn real favor, real merit with God. And so they're teaching this workspace salvation and workspace. Uh, sanctification is as well. And so John writes to these churches so that so that he can encourage them to remember the teachings of Jesus. And he starts off in chapter number one with his introduction, and then he goes right into his first section of his letter, which is about the fact that God is light. And so as followers of God, we're to live in the light. Right? That makes sense. If God is light and we're following, we're pursuing God, then we should live in the light. In other words, if we're followers of Jesus then we should live by the teachings of Jesus. That's what John's saying in the first chapter. And so he goes down through, and then he says that a true follower of Jesus is not going to deny the fact that he sins. A true follower of Jesus is going to own his sin. He's going to show ownership. He's going to acknowledge the fact that, hey, I've sinned. I've messed up. A true follower of Jesus isn't going to be the guy that says, no, I'm perfect. I don't have any sin. A follower of Jesus is going to be the guy that acknowledges, hey, I mess up sometimes. And he says, but also a true follower of Jesus, this is where we get 1 John 1, 9, he says, is going to confess his sins because God is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. So, so a true follower of Jesus doesn't deny his sins, but he confesses them. And that's the context where we get into 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So there's three truths in here that teach us how God deals with our sins. As believers in Jesus, when we sin, What's God's response? And this is really important because these truths are going to keep us from pointing the finger at other people. They're going to help us to be honest because in order to be honest about our sin, this is the topic tonight, we have to have a proper perspective of God. 
And the first truth that I see from these verses is that God's desire is that we don't sin. Look at verse number one. It says, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Now remember the setup, the, the context of that verse. John has just given the most incredible verse, I think, on God's grace in, in the Bible. First John 1, 9. I, I use it a lot. I hope you guys quote it to yourselves a lot because it's important that we remember that if we sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the God that we serve if we confess our sins. He's faithful. He's just. He's going to forgive our sins. That's who God is. And it's in the context of that verse that John reminds them. He says, hey, I'm not writing this unto you so that you can do whatever you want. I'm not writing this to you so that you can just live your life however you want. Because this was a big problem in the first century. In the first century, there were a lot of people, a lot of Judaizers, that were accusing the apostles of just preaching feel-good sermons. Uh, they were saying, man, these apostles, these Jesus followers, all they, want, all, all, they talk, all they ever talk about is grace. All they ever talk about is how they're forgiven. And they just want to do that so that they can live however they want to. And they just want to make the Gentiles feel good. Like they're just preaching feel-good sermons. That's why in Galatians 1, Paul says, for do I now persuade, persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Yet, For yet, if I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Paul, in that chapter, he's saying, look, I'm not preaching what I'm preaching so that I can make people happy. I'm preaching the truth. I'm preaching what's true about God, what's true about having a relationship with God. I'm not just trying to make people feel good. And so what John does in this verse is he clarifies something. He says, look, I'm not just telling you that God's going to forgive you of your sins so that you can go out, so that you can live however you want to. He's like, that's not why I'm writing this verse. In fact, it's the opposite. I'm writing to you, I'm writing this to tell you so that you don't sin. That's why I'm telling you about God's grace, so, so that you don't sin against him. This is really hard for, for us to believe. But if God had it his way, if after you got saved, God made you a robot, right? And he said, you know, for the rest of your life, you're going to do exactly what I say. If God had it his way in our lives, we would never sin again. That's what he wants. That's his desire. He gives us a calling in this passage to not sin as believers in Jesus. And that, that's a really difficult calling. But it's true because Jesus, he didn't just come to give us eternal life. The Bible says in John 10.10, 10, the, thief, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill, but to destroy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So Jesus is like, yeah, I came so that you would have eternal life, but I also came so that you could have abundant life. So you that you can live a life for me so that you don't have to be, your life doesn't have to be ruled by sin anymore, but, but it can be ruled by me. You don't have to be a slave to sin, but you can be free to serve God. That's why Jesus came. And so Jesus came so that our lives didn't have to be ruled by sin. The moment that we put our faith in Jesus was the moment that we got victory over sin. The moment that we trusted in Christ as our Savior, that's the moment that sin no longer had any power over us. As believers in Jesus, sin has no power. It has none whatsoever. It's got no power over us. None at all. This is why Paul says in Romans 7, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Jesus is our victory. He's the one that gives us victory over sin. Every sin that we struggle with, God's already given us victory. Every one. 
I know it's difficult to believe, but he has. He's given us victory over it. That's why God's not unfair when he calls us not to sin. Because he's already given us the victory. He's already given us victory over it. And so we, we look at that. I mean, like, that's not fair. We, we can't just not sin anymore. But he's like, no, I've given you the victory. I've already given you victory over it. So now, and I don't like this statement, but it's true. Now, as believers, when we sin, it's not because we have to. It's because we choose to. Like before you were saved, you really didn't have a choice. The Bible says that you were a slave to sin. You did what it said. Now that you're a believer, when you sin, it's not because you have to, it's because you choose to. When I sin, it's not because I have to sin, it's because I choose to sin. Growing up, I grew up going to a Christian high school, and so there was a lot of rules. And uh, so, so there was rules about what we could wear, the, the shirts that we had to wear, the pants that we had to wear, the, um, the shoes that we could wear, uh, what kind of stuff we could bring to school. You know, there's a lot of rules when you go to a Christian school. So I graduated uh, in 2018, and uh, I went to college for a semester, and then I came back during Christmas break. And it was really interesting because my mom still worked at the school, so I would still go to the school to, uh, to visit my mom. And I remember the first time driving on campus – uh, after I had graduated and I had a t-shirt and jeans during school hours. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm like sweating. I, uh, I, I felt like a, like a drug dealer trying to get through TSA. It was bad. And so I'm sweating. I'm like, man, what, what's going to happen? I'm going to get a demerit. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not under these rules anymore. Like, like I don't have to obey them anymore. Now I can choose to. I can choose to obey them, but, but I don't have to anymore. Like I could choose to put on a polo shirt and go to the school uh, to be respectful, but I don't have to. It's not being enforced to me. And the same is true with our sin. See, before we were saved, we're slaves to it. Now that we're, now that we're saved, we no longer have to obey the law of sin. We're free from it. So every time we sin, it's because we choose to. We, we, met, we, we moved from being dead in sin to being dead to sin. So we no longer have to anymore. The problem is, I don't know if any of you have this problem, but I choose sin a lot. Like a lot. Probably since I've walked in this room to preach to me. Like when I wake up in the morning, within the first five minutes, I've probably sinned already. As believers, God gives us a calling in this passage not to sin because that's how he wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live in sin as believers and Jesus, but so often we choose it anyway. If God had it his way, he would, we would never sin again, but yet we still choose it. And that's a problem. But it's true. Most of us in this room have sinned at some point today. But we didn't have to. We chose to. And the problem is that most of our, I shouldn't say most, some of our theologies stop at the beginning of this verse. Some of our theologies stop at the fact that God hates sin and it goes no further. And that's a problem because that's why when you sin, you run away from God. 
you feel like, man, God could never use me again. God, God's never going to do, God's never going to bless me again. God's never going to do anything for me again because he hates that sin. And so he's never going to forgive me. God, I, I've sinned against him in the same way over and over and over again. And so he's never going to forgive me. He's never going to use me. And that's why that belief right there is why we point our fingers at other people. That's why we say, God, I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for her. Don't forget that. Like if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have said that. Or if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have done that. Or, or if it wasn't for them, I, I wouldn't have acted that way. And we point the finger because down deep, we believe that if God knew about our sin, he wouldn't like us anymore. Because he hates sin, right? It's a big problem when our theology stops after the first part of that verse. Because that verse goes on. Let's look at the verse again. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if God had it his way, he, we wouldn't sin anymore. But when we sin, we have someone on our side. <laughs> Look at that verse. It says that we have an advocate with the Father. See, if that verse stopped at the first sentence, God would be our judge and nothing else. But I like what one author said when he was talking about this passage. He said, as Christ, even as Christians, we need more than a judge. We need a friend. And that is what, that's exactly what the Bible says in this verse that Jesus is to us. John goes on to say that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So God's preference is that we don't sin anymore. But when we do sin, because it's going to happen, God knew that it was going to happen. God knows that we're not going to live perfect, even after salvation. And so, so he says, hey, don't sin. My preference is that you don't sin. But when you sin, you have an advocate. The word advocate, it's the Greek word parakletos. What it means is someone who acts on another's behalf as a helper or a legal advocate. This is the same word that in John 14, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he calls the Holy Spirit our helper. It's the same word, parakletos. And so what's interesting is the Holy Spirit is our helper within. So the Holy Spirit helps us to remember Scripture when we're speaking to someone or when we're counseling someone or when we're sharing the gospel with someone. The Holy Spirit is the one that says, hey, what you just said was wrong or what you just did was wrong. The Holy Spirit, he convicts us. He's our helper from within. He's our parakletos. Jesus is our helper without. Jesus is our parakletos outside of us. So what this says is that Jesus, he's our legal advocate before the Father. That he's in heaven right now, that he's pleading our case. That he doesn't just stand between you and I and the Father, but he stands for us before the Father. That's who Jesus is. Just like a lawyer does when he stands in the courtroom. But Jesus has a really unique job. Because if you watch you know, lawyer shows on TV, or if you watch Judge Judy, or, or whatever you watch, if you see a lawyer... Usually what a lawyer is doing is they're pleading the case of innocence for their client, right? That's what they're doing. They're trying to explain how this person is innocent. Jesus has a really unique job in that our guiltiness has already been determined. Every single one of us is guilty before a holy God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Like we cannot stand before God and claim that we're innocent. There's no way. 
There's no way that any of us can say that we're innocent. And so Jesus has the unique job, not for pleading our innocence, not for making excuses for our sin. Jesus doesn't go to the father and say, hey, well, hey, dad, if they wouldn't have done that, or if, if that person would have done that to them, they wouldn't have done that. If that person had said that to them, then they wouldn't have done that. Jesus isn't up in heaven making excuses for us. Jesus has the unique opportunity not to argue from our righteousness, but to argue from the perspective of his righteousness. That's why I love at the end of this verse, it says that Jesus, that Jesus is our advocate. It says, our, our, sorry, our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because Jesus isn't in heaven arguing for our righteousness. Jesus is in heaven saying, hey, I lived a righteous life. I did everything that they were supposed to do. I lived a perfect life so that they didn't have to. And all the righteousness that I have on myself, all the righteousness that is in me is now on them. That's what Jesus is doing. Not arguing for our righteousness, but arguing from his righteousness. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? That's who Jesus is. Right now. So you're like, how does this change my view of God? Well, it changes your view of God because most of us believe that when we sin, Jesus wants to distance himself from us. Uh, like Jesus needs a break. He, he needs to come over here. Like, like he doesn't want anything to do with us. He doesn't want to look at us. You're disgusting. You're awful. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you looked at that. I can't believe you did that with him. I can't believe you did that with her. I can't believe you had that abortion. And so we feel guilty because we feel like Jesus, when we sin, he wants to distance himself. This verse tells us the complete opposite. This verse tells us that when we sin, Jesus doesn't distance himself, but he runs to our aid. Jesus doesn't move away from us when we sin. Jesus moves to, our, to be our helper when we sin. That, that's Jesus. That's what he does. And it doesn't say that we will have an advocate. It says that we have an advocate right now. Every single one of us right now has somebody on their side in heaven pleading their case before the Father. If you're a believer in Jesus. When we sin, Jesus isn't tired of us. Like, look, Jesus is not tired of you. He doesn't need a break from you. He doesn't need to distance himself from you. Jesus doesn't need time to cool off after you sin. He sprints to your aid. But how? You ever wonder that? How does the God of the universe, the God who is holy, the God who in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the preacher, sees God and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. The same guy, or the same God, who a few verses before that, the angels see him, and they're in his throne room, and they sing, holy, holy, holy. Like, this is a God that is completely separate from us. This is a God that, that, that we can't even understand his holiness. How can that God align himself with us? Because it doesn't just say that he puts up with us but that he aligns himself with us. That's what an advocate does. How, how does that happen? Well, the next verse tells us. Look at verse number two. 
And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So if God had it his way, we wouldn't sin. But when we do sin, we have somebody on our side. The reason we have somebody on our side is because every sin that we've ever done has been paid for. All of it. The word propitiation is a really theologically sounding word, but basically it just means that Jesus was the satisfactory payment for our sins. That's what it means. So when you sin, every time you sin, you create a debt with God. You've broken his law, you create a debt. And now, because you've sinned against him, what you deserve is to pay for your sin by spending forever separated from God in hell. That's what we deserve. We're all guilty. We all deserve to spend forever in hell. And we have this debt with God that we could never repay. And so what propitiation is, is the fact that Jesus, he came down to this earth, that he took the judgment that we should have faced on himself, that God had this wrath that needed to be poured out on sin. And so what God does, he sends his perfect son, Jesus, who never sinned. And then on the cross, he pours that wrath out on his son so that he doesn't have to pour it out on us. He pays for it. And that's something that most of us know. Like you've heard the statements that I'm about to make. You know that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We know it, but we don't believe it. Because if we believed it, we wouldn't run from God in our sin, we would run to him. That's what he wants. When Jesus died on the cross, and when you put your faith in him, he took the payment of every sin that you've ever done. Every minute, of porn that you've watched, every lie that you have told, every time that you've gossiped about someone, every like every insecure thought that, that you've had, every every discontent thought that you've ever had, every single sin, Jesus on the cross when he died paid for it. Not some of it, not a little bit of it, not most of it. He paid for all of it. But we don't live like that's true. Because when we sin, we point the finger. And if, I, if she didn't do that, then I wouldn't have done that. If he didn't do that, I wouldn't have done that. We point the finger because we don't actually believe that Jesus paid for all. But it doesn't say that he was just the payment for our sins. He was the payment for the sins of the whole world. That, that's how far the payment of Jesus went. To go to the sins of the whole world. Jesus died so that every single person could get saved. Everyone. And yet, if you were the only one who did, he would have still done it. That's the grace of Jesus. When you came in tonight, I gave everybody a, a piece of paper. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. Brother Jeremy's going to give you one. Um, I hope most of you got one. We have one up front here, too. Cool. On that piece of paper... Hopefully you have a pen. If not, then you can just imagine this because I don't have pens to give out. Now, this is kind of weird. I wouldn't do this on a Sunday morning. But I think we're spread out enough that this is appropriate. On that paper, if you have it, what I want you to do, some of you are, some of you are going to be like, are you serious? Like, you know who I'm sitting next to? I want you to write. You don't have to be detailed. You could just write one word. 
write the last sin that you can remember doing. It could be lied or stole or lusted or whatever. It could just be one word. You don't have to get specific. And don't look, look, if you're sitting next to your spouse, don't look at their paper. Okay, I see some of you like trying to peek over. Don't do that. Write the last sin that you can remember doing. Most of us, that's where our theology stops. Sorry. Most of us, when we look at ourselves, we see that word. Whether it's lied, whether it's stole, whether it's lusted, whatever it is, when we look at ourselves, when we wake up in the morning, some of us, the only thing we see is the word that's on that paper. What I want you to do is draw a line through that word. And then write one word under it. Jesus. Because when God looks at you, that's what he sees. He doesn't see your sin. If you're a believer in Jesus, your sin's been paid for. Down to the down to the last, like down to the the last minute of whatever you did, it's all been paid for. That's propitiation. That's why God can align Himself with us because when He looks at us, He sees Jesus. That's why when Satan goes to the throne room, the throne room of heaven, and he begins to accuse us, and he begins to say, "You know, God, did you see what they did? Did you see what they looked at? Did you see what they looked up? Did you see the video that they clicked on? Did you see the way she talked about her? Did you say? Did you see the way that he talked about him? Did you see? Like, are you seeing what they do? Every like, you paid for their sin. You sent your son Jesus. Do that. Do you see how they treat you? Do you see what they're doing?" They choose sin every single day. Like, are you like, do something about this. Throw your wrath on them. Pour your wrath out. And God says, I didn't see any of that. All I see is the righteousness of my son. When I look at them, all I see is Jesus. So some of us, I don't know your heart, but you might be thinking, man, this is dangerous. Because if Jesus paid for all my sin, then why can't I just go and live however I want? I want you to look at the next verse. Verse 3. And hereby do we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. See, what John means by that verse is that a true understanding of this grace, this incredible, radical grace, a, a true understanding of it will lead to a life where you keep the commandments of Jesus. Not where you do whatever you want, but where you obey Him. Not where you point the finger at other people, but where you own up to your sin. Not a life where where you're constantly blaming other people for your sin, but a life where you show ownership. Proper understanding of God's mercy and grace will lead you to obey Him out of a pure love for who he is. So if we want to live a life like we're the problem, if we want to show ownership of our sin, we covered three areas during the series. 
First of all, every day, acknowledge that you're guilty. Acknowledge, the, acknowledge what you deserve. That we deserve to spend forever separated from God in hell. Second, we judge people properly. Uh, that we don't live our life acting like we're better than everybody else, uh, but we live a humble life. Because like Pastor talked about this morning, God's not impressed with our righteousness. The only thing he's impressed with is faith. So, so we judge others properly, not acting like we're better than everybody. And then we have a proper perspective of who God is. That we understand that he doesn't like when we sin. He hates it. But when we sin, there's someone on our side. And the reason he can be on our side is because he's paid for every single sin. So he's free to love you. That's a proper perspective of God. Father, thank you for this incredible gift of grace that you've given us. 